by asking for healing right now, people are actually asking for the peace and quiet of a liberal, peaceful white supremacy on the backs of black suffering. Because the only way you get healing now is by equally silencing white supremacists and silencing racial struggle for justice. It puts them on equal footing and says, let's just stop all this divisiveness, you too. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Well, what's up, Tightrope community? Welcome to today's extended Office Hours episode. If you're watching this or listening to this recording, uh, and you want to be part of our future live office hours, you can become one of our patrons through Patreon. But if you're watching it live, this means you are one of our Patreon supporters already. So we thank you for joining our Patreon community, and we look forward to all of our future Patreon members to come. I'm Trisha Rose, and as I've said before, there wouldn't be no tightrope without my dear colleague and brilliant, brilliant friend, Dr. Cornell West, one of the greatest intellectuals on the planet. Cornell and I have been talking about this election on and off for days now, so we're really delighted to be here in, in conversation with you to talk about where we are. So, Cornell, uh, the last time we were slogging through this election was election night, which was not actually election night. It was election discussion. <laughs> we didn't come out with a winner yet. Um, and so much has happened, but so much is still in limbo. So. What's been on your mind? What are you thinking about? How are you processing this election season 2020? Well, let me first say it's always a joy, my dear sister Tricia, just to be in conversation with you. And you know, there is no tightrope without you. And all we right. thank our brothers and sisters of all colors at Patreon for being so supportive, trying to ensure that we can try to be the real forces for good that we aspire to be. You know, this, this, this election, it's a, uh, uh, it's a tale of two cities in a certain sense, because we were really pushed on the edge of the cliff, as my dear brother Cliff West, who's so much more wiser than I am, puts it. And we didn't go off that cliff, it seems. Uh, but at the same time, now that we're moving in a direction of a Biden-Harris administration, uh, we began to see very clearly, you know, the shortcomings and the blind spots of that kind of neoliberal project that we've been critical of for a long, long time. And so on the one hand, you kind of have a sigh of relief and you say, okay, America seemingly, seemingly hasn't gone fast. It's not the process is still going, legal suits and what have you. Uh, but now that America's gone back to a neoliberal reign and that neoliberal reign had some very disastrous effects, even though those disastrous effects will still be much better than an outright fascist regime. We have to refortify ourselves critically, politically, spiritually, and morally, and say, now let's continue to tell the truth about the Biden administration in the name of poor people, in the name of working people. Yeah, well, that's going to be a heck of a project in front of us. You know, I guess, you know, what's been on my mind since, mm -hmm. we, you know, hung up our boxing gloves and, you know, on the night of the election. <laughs> exactly. um, 
I guess I'm still really flummoxed and confused and upset that so many people could vote for Trump. You know, I mean, I get why people might have thought he was going to drain the swamp last time. I actually that makes a little more sense, not common sense, but a little more sense than this time. Uh, and this time means that if nothing else, it means to me that pretty much almost half the country that voted believes that it's completely reasonable to have at least a narratively supportive white supremacy advocating individual in the White House, minimally, this is bare minimum, who is not willing to issue literal violent uh, anti-black groups uh, and is comfortable with someone who has not one ounce of ethical behavior and is willing to constantly stoke not only racial division, but class division and anxiety and hatred and so on, and to try to squelch any critical discussion of, of racial knowledge in the country and its educational process. That means all of this is fine to them. Like it's not even an issue. And so that brings me to one of my biggest concerns, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, mm -hmm. which is that we're not in a situation where, um, where we can get to this question of healing, which everybody seems to want us to be at yesterday. I see people in their yard signs talking about healing, the next step is healing, people on the internet, the next step is healing, people on the news, people on op-ed, man, healing is not the next darn step. <laughs> I mean, you cannot heal something until you, first of all, figure out what it is. That's Second right. of all, handle all the injury and pain and inflammation, if we take the metaphor seriously. You know, some people have said, you know, you have to clean out the wound. That's the bare minimum. And then you have to really live with the fact that this may be a broken body that has to live with the with an open wound, right? It's not necessarily gonna get healed. I guarantee you it's not gonna be healed anytime this week. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Truth. But people are just going that's straight to healing. Truth. And here's my one insight, and I'm looking forward to hearing, I'm, I'm shopping it just to you right now and Patreon right here, which is that there's no circumstance under which you can expect healing to take place and and in by asking for healing right now people are actually asking for the peace and quiet of a liberal peaceful white supremacy on the backs of black suffering because the mm -hmm. only way you get healing now is by equally silencing white supremacists and silencing racial struggle for justice it puts them on equal footing and says let's just stop all this divisiveness you too right? Let's just quiet down and go back to the calm, peaceful white supremacy world we previously had. And that to me is more dangerous than the than almost anything else because it demonizes black suffering and the cries for freedom, justice, and humane treatment and puts it on the same level as literal racial hate, all for the interest of a false healing mm. model. That is a profound formulation. That's why the tightrope is the tightrope, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, that is a tightrope problem, isn't it? But but also, you know, you just don't get that kind of profound formulation in so many other media venues. And we have no monopoly on truth, but what you just said is something that needs to be heard uh, in every household in the country, that when people call for healing, they're not really calling for healing, they're calling for calm, and contentment so they can go back into their mode of denial. 
And that mode of denial is predicated on a false equivalency between the white supremacist sensibilities and orientations and moral responses and forms of resistance to it. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, let's just, just look at who actually voted for Trump. You got 58% of white brothers, 53% of white sisters after four years, right? You got 28% of our precious queers. You got 30% of our precious Latinos, Latinas. 29 to 28% of Jewish brothers and sisters, precious as they are. So in other words, lo and behold, if it wasn't for black folk, we would have gone off a neo-fascist cliff. And even in the black community, you had some folk who were willing to lean toward Trump. So more that, brothers and sisters, though. Sisters and more, and, and down, gender, right? that's exactly right. And gender. So that yeah. we, before we even talk about healing, we got to get a sense of what was going on. Now, I do not believe that that every person who voted for Trump uh, voted just for white supremacy. You got a lot of folk out there who are in very deep hurt and pain and feel as if the neoliberal Biden and Harris is not going to speak to that pain. And when Bernie was unable to emerge, when he was crushed by the neoliberal uh, corporate wing of the Democratic Party, they're looking for an alternative to the neoliberal establishment, and they swing to Trump rather than swing to Bernie. We've got millions who did that, but not the vast majority of the folks, not the right, vast majority. Right. So right. you got a certain heterogeneity in Trump's base in terms of who voted for him, but he's got a strong, strong base among xenophobic, white supremacists, homophobic, and, and deeply sexist uh, 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 fellow citizens. Right. And so you're right. I mean, all this talk about healing. Usually the folk who are calling for healing are precisely the neoliberal cheerleaders for the neoliberal Biden-Harris administration right. that somehow want to view themselves as exempt from serious self-examination and self-scrutiny. Yeah. You know, they spent $1.1 billion looking for the Biden Republican. This is with Brother Rahm Emanuel. This is the year of the Biden Republican. They got one candidate who won. All that money spent. Some of those consultants became millionaires and were told there's hardly any Biden Republicans out there, but they did it anyway. And right. what's the first thing too many of them do when they win? They start blaming the progressives. They start right. blaming the folk on the left. And you say, right. you've got to be kidding. Those yep. of us who invested so much of our time and energy, you know about the, the music videos in Philadelphia with Keith oh. Benson and the drummer for Teddy Pendergrass, the meetings with Brother Anthony Williams and the Black Congressional Caucus in Pennsylvania, and it was mm -hmm. Pennsylvania and disproportionately Black folk who pushed Biden and Harris over That's the line. Right. That's right. Sister I Stacey mean, in Georgia, Brown brothers and sisters in Arizona, you say, wait a minute now. Yep, you're exactly. And you know, I want to highlight one thing you're saying in particular, Cornell. I mean, everything you said mm -hmm. is so powerful and important. But I want to really make sure we do shout out people on the ground. People came out. They came people out. came out. They came out to register other people. They came out to drive people to the polls. They came out to That's organize right. people, to have allies. You have teenagers who can't even vote, staffing polls because elderly people are more afraid of the you know virus right now and didn't couldn't make it as they might have historically. 
you know, you had the postal service, people working multiple shifts to make sure these ballots, I mean, people really came out. It really touches me, you know, because even if it hadn't been relatively successful, right, that effort means something, right? That's it's, exactly right. There's something very important about, about, you know, the soil in which that spirit can grow. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so Absolutely. I, I was very moved by that. I mean, people were serious. And they were not they were not taking this like whatever. They realized what's at stake and they and they gave all they could give. I, I really believe that. I mean, when I heard Brother Biden say, black people had my back and I'm gonna have their back, and it kind of hits the lectern. I said, Ooh, now that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because so often, you know, a disproportionate number of our American citizens are black citizens who end up saving the country from going off the cliff and they're the first ones crucified. First They're the one. first ones pushed to the side, kicked to the curb. They're the first yeah. ones whose suffering is rendered invisible. Once right. again, just get on the bandwagon and follow us. Yep. Wall Street, Pentagon militarism. Mass incarceration. Uh, mass incarceration. Exactly. Right. We've just seen it over and over and yeah. over again. But, you know, you know i yeah, yeah. He said it, so now we, we're going to have to play it back. Although apparently you can say anything. It doesn't really yeah, well, that's matter. That's true. That's very true. So I got another question for you. We got a couple minutes mm -hmm. before we move to our next segment of, of our office hour. So I want to talk about Kamala and the claiming of Kamala, right? Yes, because yes. Things have gone completely, you know, mayhem around who owns Kamala. Do the Indians own Kamala? Do the Jamaicans own Kamala? do black people in general own Kamala, right? And then everybody, yeah. and then of course the related to the, to the who Kamala belongs to question is the unbelievable, unabashed, just, I believe I can be president now because there's a black woman or an Indian woman or, you know, uh, in the, going into the White House as a vice president. As much as I understand the salience of identity politics, I just get a little worried about this extreme one-to-one -one ratio as if being a negro means x right being a woman means y being a black or whatever it is i mean these things are not equivalent and i just don't know how to explain that anymore you know so i mean i was just shocked by it and just people get so excited now i'm not against kamala i'm not saying this is my point isn't about her my point is about this identification are we so impoverished around belief because of so much crushing rejection that we can only imagine ourselves when there's somebody else in the job yeah but that, that's that's part of the uh the impoverishment of a certain kind of narrow obsession with identity uh, if identity is not rooted in integrity if identity is not rooted in courage if identity is not rooted in solidarity with poor and working people then you can play all the neoliberal games you want with diversity and equity and inclusion and you end up just reproducing the class hierarchy, you end up reproducing the militarism, reproducing the mass incarceration, because mass incarceration has to do with the poor and working folk. It's not the professionals in the upper middle classes that get in on the identity politics being played. And so I think that, uh, you know, we salute Sister Kamala. Without a doubt. Uh, Harris, you know, she's brilliant. She, her achievement is a historic achievement. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, we root identity and integrity, truth-telling, courage, and what is your relation to poor and working people? And that's yep. very, very real. In addition to her, though, I, I should say that uh, I was a bit disturbed when she didn't mention her father. 
you know, because yeah. he's the biological source of her blackness. Right. And whatever the relation, whatever the contention and conflict there, you would mm. think that she would transcend that and simply, simply say, I acknowledge my father. He's sitting there watching it in California, right? I mean, mm. he's sitting there watching it and there's no treating him like a non-entity, like a non-person yeah, yeah. in yeah. a certain sense. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And her last name is Harris. It's not Nehru. Yeah. Her last name was Nehru. She wouldn't be there. Everybody well, know that. Well. Now, she worked hard. She sacrificed her brilliance. It's, I think, undeniable. But there's no way that she can be on the international stage right? and, and somehow treat the biological source of her blackness like a non-entity. Well, right, right. I mean, and especially given how important, you know, black institutions are to her legacy. I mean, yeah. HBCUs train black people to have the confidence of possibility that, you know, PWIs frequently destroy, not all That's the right. time, but frequently. Right. And then, That's you know, right. her own relationship to the sorority and, and, and Greek culture. A and the AKA, black which is wonderful. Right, right, very important support network. So it's not like just a little fiction, right, to have this biological link. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. it is hard, you know, it's hard to transcend your you know, childhood family wounds. It is a challenge. No, it, that's know. true. And, and and she has a right to try to wrestle with that in her own way. It's just that when she makes certain kind of choices, there are major consequences. Yeah. That's the thing about it, you see. And, yeah. and you, you don't want to reproduce the notion of the black man as being just no good, good for nothing father who didn't Who's support. Not, and that's not the not case. Not worthy but, of mention, right. Professor Donald Harris, I mean, the first black tenured professor in economics at Stanford University, connections mm. with Jamaica, Jamaica and all of its richness and all of its mm. depth and all of its scope in terms of playing fundamental roles of black struggle around the world in the Western hemisphere and so forth. So that this notion of somehow you can just continue to be on this stage and treat him like a non-entity. I mean, it reminds me in some ways of when Biden was calling black young brothers predators mm, and mm. thinking that you could generate a mass incarceration regime in alliance with Strom Thurmond, in alliance with Jesse Hams, who were already producing the old Jim Crow, he's now going to be an architect of the new Jim Crow. And it's going to be primarily the young black brothers who were disproportionately going to be brought into the mass incarceration. Man, so that, you, so that, you think it's that bad, Corn? <laughs> I, I just think that the black man and all of our faults and foibles and all of our ups and downs, that we can't have somebody on the international stage just reinforcing a mm. vicious stereotype. I see. I see. You see what I mean? But didn't that, she just not dangerous. mention him? Did she? Did she reinforce? Did she say something that I'm not remember? I, I honestly don't remember. She but just by treating just, just by treating him as a non-entity, people fill in the story themselves. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's, that's good the point. thing. All she got to say story is, is already there. Now my father. Boom! I'm gone. Right, right. All you right. got to do. Right. Yeah, and even just the Harris family, right? You know, which would mean begin with him and extend in all kinds of directions. Yeah, well, his his yeah. mother, who she had a wonderful relationship with her grandmother there in Jamaica. I mean, it's 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 not major, major, but no, I just no, think no. that this can come back to haunt her. She'll just nip this in the bud right quick and keep moving. Right, right, that's right. what yeah. she needs to do. Yeah, take right. That's a good point, and it, you can do it these days. You can just oh take yeah. A, you just a little bit of Twitter and you're all set. A little bit of Twitter and think, hey, that's it. So that it's all the talk about blackness in terms of identity politics. 
Yeah, where could it come from without Harris, right? Don't, don't. Exactly, without the brother himself. Very yeah, yeah. So. And very Jamaica, blackness, so. and two, two out of three identities fall off the map. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. I swear, I swear. And then you get Jamaica and you get India, you know, Brahmin and India. We're right. not talking about the dollars. Yeah, right. so that, that that has its own genealogy and history as well. But but our Indian brothers and sisters in whatever form they come in, they're human beings who make choices in regard to integrity, choices in terms of courage, choices in terms of solidarity with poor and working people. Some right. do, some don't. Black folk who are come from enslaved US people, they can right. choose lack right. of integrity. They can choose lack of courage or whatever. It's a human choice we're making here. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, thank you for that. That was who this was. That was a serious election recap, in my opinion. That was uh, that was pretty rich. That was concentrated. That was some concentrated uh, juice right there. Um, just just following your Mary Lou Williams, following your Jerry Allen on the piano. <laughs> oh, I wish I could play. Saxophone. <laughs> with your oh. deep blue on. Oh, I know. That's a, I had to bring out the blue today because that's all right. That's all right. We all love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we have a special uh, guest now with us who's going to join us from our Patreon community. And so this is one of the really exciting things we've been looking forward to, to meet our Patreon family and to give them an opportunity to be part of Office Hours. Tom, are you there? I am here. Thanks All for right, having me. All right, Tom. Brothers, a blessing, so blessing to see you, though, Brother Tom. Thank you. It's a big honor to be here. I've been a fan of the show since it started. I've been following your work, Dr. West, since I saw you on Bill Maher years ago. And uh, Dr. Rose, I wasn't familiar with your work until this podcast started, but I bought Black Noise. I'm looking forward to reading that. So. All right. Well, oh, then. you are in for a treat, my brother. In for a treat. Thank and you. And we know you. you are the baby, the youngest of nine magnificent folk in your family. Mm. I am, yep. Wow. Wow. We salute well, you, man. We salute that means, you. Yes. Well, you must have a whole family of readers and engagers, you know, to, to be engaged as much as you are with our tightrope. We're going to celebrate your whole family being responsible for your uh, your cu curiosity and engagement. So we're really happy to have you with us. Thank you. So, OK, so you've got a pretty intense question. So the rest of you patron patron knights. Please, you know, hang on to your seat because he's starting us off real. He's not no lightweight question. So let, let, uh, let me read it to you right now. All right, everybody. Here is Tom Hall's question. And in case we have a question for you, stay, stay by near us. Okay, Tom? I will. All right. So he wants to know, Tom wants to know uh, the following. So there was a recent dust up in the online leftist community over Brianna Joy Gray's interview of Noam Chomsky on the Bad Faith podcast. Brianna Joy Gray asked why black working class people should vote for Democrats, or as she put it, quote, blue no matter who, when the Democrats make no effort to earn their votes. Chomsky sidestepped the general question, Tom says, and Chomsky replied that because of the existential threat posed by Trump in this specific case, it was incumbent on activists to convince people to vote for Biden. I agree with him in the specific. And to be fair, I believe Brianna did too. But I'm still interested in the general question. So here it is. Now that the election is largely over, or so we think, 
My question is essentially the same as Brianna Joy Gray's. If the Democrats know they can count on the votes of black people without offering them anything, what leverage do the people have to influence outcomes? And I'm gonna turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. West, to kick us off in thinking through this critically important question. Well, Brother Tom, we wanna thank you for starting this whole series on such a high note because that is a fundamental question. And though I agree with Brother Noam Chomsky and Angela Davis and Bob Ovakian and Paul Street and the other uh, left-wing uh, activists who have been exemplary in so many ways of voting for Biden, we've always thought you have to tell the truth. And the question about the black working class is a different question than the black upper professional class the black upper professional class is gonna cash in on the Biden-Harris presidency. It's gonna cash in on the diversity programs of corporate America. It's gonna be able to gain opportunities in the upper echelons of American society. But your question about the black working class, and in many ways, this is true for working class folk across the board. Nina Turner has made this point with tremendous power in her uh, piece in the Washington Post a few days ago, that the black poor and the black working class will be left behind if the Biden-Harris administration does exactly what the establishment Democratic Party elites have traditionally done. So it will look like in the name of identity politics that black folk are benefiting, but it will be class skewed. It will be benefiting those at the top of the black community. It will not be benefiting those at the bottom or the black working class. So the way you ask that question is very, very astute because we begin to see how class is inseparable from race and race is inseparable from class. And we shouldn't think that because black professionals are doing very well, that the black community as a whole is doing very well. And then the question becomes, well, how then do we focus on black poor and black working class folk. And we thank God, you know, for Brother Bernie Sanders and others who've been trying to raise this question. But we may end up reaching the conclusion that the Democratic Party simply doesn't have the institutional capacity to speak to the black working class and the black poor. So we have to look elsewhere. It could be People's Party or any other major alternative. That's that that's an issue that we're, many of us are wrestling with right now. But I know Sister Trisha's got much to say on this too. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's that's critical. And thank you, Tom, for this for this rich question. We we were we looked at it and we we're like, oh boy, this is not a casual thing. <laughs> so um, you know, I mean, everything Cornell said makes perfectly great sense to me. The thing I would say on a slightly different angle is that you know I don't think of black working class people's votes for Democrats as a waste insofar as they don't get their needs met, partly because I think most working class people don't get their needs met by any of the democratic voting process. So what that means, if, if it were true that only black working class people were the ones not being listened to, not being heard, whose livelihoods and agendas were the only ones being undercut, then I might have a different response. I might be more in line with the blue, the critique of blue no matter who as uh, Brianna put it. But because it crosses race, this problem, I think of a black Democrat investment as an effort to basically tamper down on the wounds that 
the political class creates. And that it's really a, is a short-term sort of survival strategy that I don't think should be diminished because I do think when you are in poor communities, you know, or you come from them, I think you know that, or you are likely to believe, and I think it's true, that surviving in the short term is the key to long-term survival. There's no point in a long-term survival if you can't make it to next month. Uh, so the question is, why are we always in survival mode, right? And how can we get out of survival mode in terms of long-term planning and expectations? And to whom can we turn um, for that opportunity? I don't think that third party voting is gonna solve that in this climate. I think it's a very pragmatic, grounded response. These are the alternatives we have. And we know this one, like life is gonna go on tomorrow one way or another. So hopefully, what does that mean? What will, what will it look like? Will it look like a, a hard story? Or is it gonna look like a mildly psychological thriller? <laughs> You know, so, you know, we I want to keep it down to a psychological thriller and not be a, an outright horror story. So to me, it's not a confusion where I would press the issue is my last point my, where I press the issue is to say, how can we organize black communities in solidarity with other affinity like communities, whoever they may be, to really pressure the Democratic Party after the election? And do we have enough of a base of a movement to say, okay, look, we threw our, our hat in with you and now we have a whole lot of demands that we want answered, just like other constituencies get what they get. They get anti-abortion agendas met. They get you know, other evangelical agendas met. We have our agendas. We want mass incarceration to come to an end. We want restored voting rights for everybody. We want you know, equal pay. We want jobs. Uh, we want equally funded schools, you know, whatever it is, the list may be. And we need to keep that pressure up. So the issue isn't the vote, vote to me as much as it is, what are we doing after that? Uh, and, and that's where our leverage should be. I don't know if that you know, adds anything useful, but that's, that's the part I would add. Cornell, I turn it back. And that's, that's no, I, I, I think that's crucial. That's crucial. But brother Tom, did you want to say a word though, brother, response? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really appreciated, uh, Dr. Rose, your point about um, the world is going to keep going on tomorrow, because that's what I what I say. I, I did not want to vote for Biden this time around. But but as I said to other people, something is going to happen in January, like one of two people at this point is going to be, you know, inaugurated as president in January. If I don't want it to be Trump, then I need to do what I can to make sure it's Biden. And um so, so yeah, I just, I, I, I appreciate the pragmatism, but. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it is true that we've voted and let them continue to do what they do. And that's not our fault because there's a ton of manipulation and people say all these things and then they don't do them and people got to go to work and they got to raise their families and they got to try to put food on the table and try to stay out of the police precincts. You know, I mean, this is a full-time, any one of those things is a full-time job. So I understand. But at the same time, you know, um, power responds to pressure and power. Power and pressure doesn't respond to, I voted for you, and now I'm going to send you a memo, you know, uh, about my expectations. So I think we, this, is a, this is a claim for us doing more uh, and, and, and pushing. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the key, though, is for all three of us not to allow any practical 
decision to dampen our fire that continues to bring critique to bear on the neoliberal politics of a Biden and a Harris that's still too tied to Wall Street greed, the too tied to Pentagon militarism. It's still too tied to the relative silence on mass incarceration and so forth. It's still too tied to uh, 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 the kind of foreign policy that we're gonna see now right. where American power in Africa come and Africom extended and, and, and the Middle East and so forth. So that as long as we have that fire, that practical judgment is just one moment that pushes Trump back, pushes fascism back, but allows us to recognize the kind of solidarity that Sister Tricia was talking about in the end is going to have to be the way we go because we're in an immoral dilemma. You know, we've got to choose a vote for Biden when we know he's not going to speak to black working class, white working class, Latino working class, poor across the board. And yet we right. got to push Trump back. And when we push Trump back, then we're quickly forgotten. Yep. You just, we just keep track of his uh, pro Wall Street policies. It's going to kick in so quickly. Keep track yep. of the militarism that he's not going to cut that military budget and so forth. Right. That's where our voices need to be heard. That's where the pressure needs to be put. And, you know, AOC and a few in the Democratic Party, I think, will, will lean in our direction, but it won't be enough. It won't be enough. Right. The Democratic Party is already talking about what it said. They don't want to hear the word socialism again. <laughs> as if as if it was the left wing of the Democratic Party that opted for all these billions of dollars looking for Biden Republicans, please. Exactly. Please. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, though, there's a, this was a very sophisticated ground, you know, a strategy among, uh, you know, politically uh, organized Black communities and Black uh, organizations and other people of color in solidarity, and so, et cetera. And so we need to keep that pressure alive. Everybody needs a bit of a break because we're all completely exhausted. And I know the groundswell, you know, Tamika Mallory and others have been traveling the country. Rashad Robinson, Color of Change. I mean, I, I, you oh, know, a lot yeah. of organizations doing very Absolutely. important work. So everybody needs a good sleep and, you know, a little bit of nourishment. But now is the next stage, right? As, as, as Tracy Ellis Ross was saying, now we get up and fight some more. Like this was not a victory dance. This was a save yourself from, you know, a horror show. And now we still got we still got work to do. So, I mean, I think that's the real that's the real rub to that discussion. Um, but, Tom, thank you so much. This was so great to have you. Thanks for being our first inaugural Patreon live guest conversation during office hours. Yeah, it was exciting. Thanks a lot for inviting me. No doubt. Oh, you no. welcome back. Come we on thank through. you, though, brother. We thank you, though, man. All right. Take care, Tom. Stay strong, though. All right, we got another Patreon question, Cornell, from another uh -huh. uh, member. His name is Brad Moore. And Brad, thank you for sending in a question and being part of the Patreon uh, tightrope world. So now we have uh, uh, Brad's question. His, here's his question here. In my view, a lot of the social unrest in the United States that we've seen lately is the manifestation of decades and centuries of miseducation of our youngest citizens. How can people without the means to litigate these issues in the court most effectively to fight back against systemic racism and disenfranchisement as it relates to public education, pre-K through 12 and post-secondary? I saw on the, the note here that Brother Brad is in the house, which is, which is wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, Brother Brad is in the house. So just we want to salute you, Brother Brad. Thank you, Brad. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah, Another yeah. very important question. But we know pub public education, any form of education is fundamentally about trying to get the high quality attention of students so they focus on the things that matter, like truth, like knowledge, like justice, like decency, like integrity, like honesty. And there's no doubt that our school system, for the most part, is failing in that regard. Most of our school systems don't have in their curriculums the full truth about American past and present future, let alone the full truth of the world's past and present future. We have very narrow, narrow frameworks to understand the United States. We don't want to tell the truth about the slavery, don't want to tell the truth about the workers' movement, don't really want to tell the truth about woman subordination and the Mexican War and how California was once Mexico and became part of the United States and so forth. You know, th th these are not, these are painful truths that's oftentimes are just too much uh, uh, for the, uh, the narrowness of the public school system. So we just have to have teachers who care enough about students that they care about the truth and knowledge and can give them and see the best of America and the worst. Anytime you see the worst of America, there's been Americans who have fought that worst. That's the best of America, you see. And so we need a broader framework to understand the truth about America, knowledge about the American past, how it relates to the present. And this is true, you know, at, at, at Brown University, it's true at Harvard, just as it is in public schools. But what, what would be your take, my dear sister? Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I mean, the thing that really moved me about what you started with was, you know, it isn't about the subject. This is how I translated what you said. It's not about mm -hmm. science or about philosophy or about English or about novels. It's about our character. And the moment you start with that, right? Are we gonna be about courage? Are we gonna be about truth telling? Are we gonna be about compassion and so on and so forth? Now we pick the subjects after that, right? Absolutely. Because it's not about the content, uh, but we're so technocratic on education right now. It's all about, you know, what's my goal? How can I use this information to gain a leverage point uh, one way or another? Um, so that's one main thing, but I think, you know, uh, the denial of the flaws of the development of this nation, the colonial history, the history of enslavement, the, the, the stealing of the entire nation, it's the, the, the continent, the Northern American continent from the indigenous people, uh, all of this, the fact that we can't even address it in any reasonable way has made most citizens more brittle. And the more brittle they are, the more they bristle and fight against hearing that which makes them uncomfortable. But if we could figure out how to listen to the reality of the situation and believe, because of the That's ethical right. decisions you've laid out, Cornell, believe that the next step is a process of reconciliation and reflection and transformation, and to see that on the other side is the loss of that brittle kind of defensiveness and that yes. shocking denial of how am I going to survive now that I know I come from a colonial people? Oh my God, you know, it's like, well, okay, you've been surviving okay without knowing. So, you know, let's work on what, what assets are going to be accrued by knowing. So, to me, it's about the psyche that has been destroyed in relationship to this. It's made people unable to be the warriors for justice that they could be. You know, you, Cornell, and I teach, you know, African-American studies, among many other things. But I find, and I don't know if this is true for you, but that when people know who haven't heard and who haven't been paying attention, 
of course there's shock and outrage and a stage of grief because there's a, it's horrible news, a lot of it. Absolutely. But once people feel like they can be aware and have a certain kind of, I don't want to quite want to say mastery, but knowledge and empowerment by knowing, then they move to other stages of relationship to the material, right? And that is what we really need, right? To, to solve this situation. I have one last thought Absolutely. about this. And, then, and that Absolutely. is, I think we have the kind of technology now where we can get around this problem, right? If we take the curriculum basically to the virtual streets, and that's some of what we're doing here on the tightrope, right? creating you know content that people will challenge these uh, brittle kinds of consciousnesses and encourage people to keep forging forth to say look this knowledge does not break you it it empowers you to do the right thing to have the courage to do the right thing and i think we just have to use more of our resources in front of us as much as we can um to to really dispel the the kinds of consciousnesses that this educational system produces. Absolutely. And this is another reason why, you know, people talk oftentimes about speaking truth to power mm -hmm. and that's badly needed, but we also need to teach the truth to the relatively powerless because mm -hmm. poor and working people, wherever they are, they also need to know the truth about themselves and ways in which they can be empowered, but the truth right. about themselves, about what they're up against. Uh, I'm, I'm right now reading a uh, magnificent book by uh, Brother Braxton, Braxton Shelley, he's a professor here at, at Harvard. It's on gospel music. It's mm. on a genius named uh, Richard Smallwood, one uh -huh. of the greatest uh, gospel composers since Thomas Dorsey. Mm. And Smallwood was at Howard University, and we love Howard and all of its complexity. They had to sit in in 1968 just to have gospel music as part of the music curriculum because it was only European music, music. at the time. Right. And so with Smallwood, the total praise, we know all of his great contributions and songs that what what Braxton Shelley is able to show is we had to speak the truth to a magnificent institution at Howard University. Uh, this is the Kamala Harris comes out. My dear brother, Larry Morris, who's now head of the, chair, the chairman of the uh, trustee board, he's one of the most finest citizens in the country, that Howard produced some high quality folk. But it didn't want to hear painful truths about black people because right. the gospel was associated with black poor people and black working people. And Howard for so long was producing a black middle class that was right. obsessed with European music. Now European music beautiful at its best, but music by black poor people and working people, James Cleveland and the others, you can't think about can't it. You can't touch you can't, it. You can't touch it. So is this process of speaking the truth to whoever in mm -hmm. public education, at Howard, at Hampton, at Morehouse, at Spelman, at Harvard, at University of Chicago, Long Beach right. Community College, right. whatever it is. You see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, we don't need to wait till people get to college to start speaking the truth. Absolutely. You, you start know, kindergarten with those grand crackles and the milk. Kids are not, kids know a whole lot more than we give them credit for. And they're, you know, they process all the anxiety, the high rates of, of, of mental conditions. You know, they're living, it's, it, they're experiencing the, the, you know, mendacity and the schizophrenia of the context that they're living in. And That's so, right. you know, by telling people, no, look, there really is a hierarchy. It's not supposed to be, but there is. And here's Absolutely. what it looks like. They'll be like, exactly. oh yeah, this, this may, oh, okay, now this makes some sense. 
It's not going to be like, oh my God, that's shocking. It's going to be, thank you. I remember when I first was given sort of a structural explanation for mm -hmm. things that made, that didn't, that I couldn't quite put my finger on. It was a profound relief. It didn't bring me down. I was like, oh, so that's the that's game. That's what's place. going on. Exactly. I was liberated by that. Now, you know, that's not true for everybody, but there should be access to that information as much as possible. And so but what given I your precociousness, though, that probably happened at about three and a half, four years old in Harlem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I did. I did have some. Yeah, I, you know, there's a funny story. I'll tell you another time about that. But uh, they were going to close the public library on 145th street in Harlem. And this, I, I had to be five years old and wow. uh, I was furious about it. I was like, mom, we got to go to the public library and try to protest and make it stay open because you know, we need the library. And I was all the way over there. I was huffing and puffing. I'm just learning to read and they about to close my library. <laughs> so we get to the place and there's a camera and my mom says, well, tell the man with the camera, you know what you just told me. And she says, I refuse to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> So she said, well, but this will get your word out to more people. I was like, no, 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 you already had a healthy suspicion of the press anyway. They, they go, <laughs> this little sister sounded like Fannie Lou Heyman, Ella Baker already. What's going on? I was mad. I was mad about that library. But, you know, again, I think everyone comes with a different disposition. But, you know, yeah. we still need to have this truth telling because we, we, we owe it to our kids. Uh, and and I, I would wanna tell Brad uh, in particular, we need to fight public school programming and curriculum. You know, you pay taxes so that your kids and our kids and everybody's kids can be miseducated as you put it, rightfully yeah, so. Yeah, that's true. And so we need to make sure our money is being spent, you know, not for the police to bash people in the head and not to crush the intelligence of our young people. So. You know, that's we have to do a little bit more about that. But thank you, Brad. That was a really thank great thank you, brother Brad, keeping the standards high. Yeah, I tell you, we are starting off on a high, high note. On a high note. No, we right. appreciate brother yes, Brad. Sir. Brad Moore in the Yep. Thanks for joining us. And this is getting us off to a fresh start. Okay, so now we have uh Paige Hopper, and Paige has two questions for Dr. West. Uh one is in your opinion, what personal priorities do Black Americans need to focus on right now? So as she's saying personal priority, or they're saying personal priorities. And then uh, in your recent tightrope interview with Tracy Ellis Ross, you spoke about Black Americans beginning to, quote, emptying ourselves out for the healing of others. Can you elaborate on what's the, what this looks like and how we should go about it? Mm -hmm. God Almighty, Lord, Lord. Yeah, that's a the lot. Of, is, <laughs> that's a lot, a lot of salad. A lot of salad there, bro. <laughs> you got a whole lot there. Her name again was Page. Sister Page. Yeah, I would say that. Uh, I mean, the two challenges of Black folk ever since the dignified African got off that vicious slave ship and entered the uh, slave auction and onto the slave plantation is not enough self-love and too much poverty so that we've got to learn how to love and respect ourselves straighten our backs up and live in such a way that no matter what our circumstances are we still have a dignity and integrity and secondly we have got to abolish poverty in all of its forms because it's, we've traditionally had too many poor people now how do we do that well we got to join movements like 
with Brother Barber and Sister Thea Harris and others are. We got to raise our voices so that the treatment of the black poor becomes a measure of how the black community progress is measured. Mm -hmm. So it's a different lens through which one views the world. And so on a personal level, that means you live a life of self-respect. You live a life of dignity. You live a life in which you indeed want to be a force for something bigger than you, which is abolishing poverty. Now that second question had to do with uh, yeah. What, uh, can you elaborate on what you said to Tracy about how we have to begin to empty ourselves out for the healing of others? Um, oh well, no. Th those two questions are connected. Th that when you're living a life, holding on to the best of your human ability to integrity and dignity and trying to speak the truth and seek justice, you are opening yourself, you're giving yourself, you're serving others, you are donating yourself in terms of time and energy and the gifts that you have, you're there to serve others. That becomes a benchmark of greatness and you want to be a morally and spiritually great human being, an mm. habitual vision of moral and spiritual greatness. Mm. So service is how we should go about it. That's Absolutely. Service. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a, that, that's why people's commitment in this election was so powerful to me. I would say a lot of it was very much that what you've described. As Standing eight hours, out. 10 hours in line to vote. Whew. You know, lines that are completely unnecessary, but we'll we'll um, leave yeah, that yeah, for another that, in a pandemic too. In I a mean, pandemic. It's, it's really something. Yeah, and yeah, bringing, yep, everybody. Well, that's those are great questions. Thank you very much, Paige. Um, all right, we're moving through our amazing list of Patreon peeps. I think that's what we should call them, I've decided. Patreon <laughs> peeps, our Patreon <laughs> peeps, okay. Uh, we have Victoria Sosaya, Sosaya or Sosaya, and the question really does capture the mood of where a lot of people are right now. And so let's see if we can help out with this one. Um, Victoria is saying that she's feeling so discombobulated with so much tension in the world. I do my best to respect everyone, but I think that no one is truly free to be themselves. How can one navigate this chaotic world while maintaining kindness and love for people who hate us, disagree with us, or people we disagree with and on the border of starting to hate? How can we maintain kindness and love in this chaotic, you know, hateful, conflict-based environment? Yeah. Did you want to take a stab at that one? And I can no. try. Follow. Okay, that's I'll give. That's, I'll, a, okay. that's, a, that's a tough one now. That is a tough one. but um, That's a tough one. I guess, and I, I'll stand corrected from uh, Professor West on this if I have this wrong, but you're kind and you love not for the other people, but for yourself. And it's almost like wearing a mask, you know, because, you know, you think the mask is there to protect you, but it's there to protect others. It's kind of like that in reverse. You're kind and you love because your spirit by staying open creates a climate and a condition for more kindness and love. Whereas if, if you don't actually uh, follow that through, then you end up perpetuating the thing you're most hoping goes away. So you're not kind and loving because you're waiting for somebody else to be kind and loving back. And so when I turn it that way, I mean, that doesn't mean I'm always kind and loving. Sometimes I talk beneath my breath and roll by and say, you know, that fool voted for Trump, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you 
know, and it's a shorthand of irritation, right? <laughs> and sometimes you're afraid, right? Because you look at some people and you think, boy, if it, if it were dark out, I don't know what would be going on right now. Um, so there's fear and there's worry. But I guess for me, the navigation is really trying to be kind and loving and still holding your ground about what you believe in. Right. You don't have to live on top of a lie. You got to be willing to hold your ground and say, look, this is not acceptable to me and I'm not going to go out of my way to harm you, but I'm not going to let you have the last word about yeah, this right. either. So I guess that's my simplistic approach. Yeah, that's right. No, that's not simplistic at all. And it's here where my own the revolutionary Christian uh, faith comes in that you know, to be a follower of Jesus who goes straight to the temple and runs out the money changers with a level of righteous indignation such that they end up putting him on a cross as a political criminal for running those money changers out. That he's kind and he's loving, but he still has a righteous indignation for those who will exploit poor people. So that same Jesus says, well, you love your enemies. Why? Because if you follow me, you're going to have so many of them. And you don't want them to be the point of reference that dictate how you live your life. Right. That they're there, that when their deeds are such that it requires a critique and resistance, you do that in the name of love. So kindness and, 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 and decency is not a political strategy. It's not a utilitarian calculation. It's your way of being in the world, you choose to be loving and kind, but for those who are crushing those you love, you have a righteous indignation to run them out of the temple. Right. Now you may end up on the cross, so you got to think things through, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely want to think that one through. <laughs> you think, but that's the risk, and it's true. You know, you love your mama and somebody gonna mistreat your mama. You go, you hate that fact that she's being mistreated and you're going to respond. If you don't respond, the rock's going to cry out. Right. That's the way the world is. But, you know, Cornell, have that kind of love. Right, right, right. Think, I mean, imagine someone's in a workplace where they're surrounded by people of the opposite political dis disposition. Right. Right. And they feel like they're going to lose their job if they say anything uh, or you know, maybe they live in a neighborhood filled with, you know, Trump signs and they're Biden supporters and they're keeping quiet or vice versa. Although I think most of the hate does not seem to be coming from Biden side of the equation here, but that I could be completely biased and, and therefore missing the point. But um, how, you know, how given how heightened everything is right now, you know, maybe it's not only about when they're deliberately disrespect, but just how do you survive that kind of climate? You know what I mean? How do you keep your right. equilibrium? Right. Um, right. I just think that, again, we've told our precious folk who listen to us all the time, never be surprised by evil, never be paralyzed by despair. So you don't give those folk a whole lot of weight. Right. In terms of how you go about living your life. But when those folk engage in vicious behavior, you have a righteous indignation. You hit the streets, you organize, you demonstrate, you bring power and pressure to bear against their deeds. Mm -hmm, you see? Mm -hmm. But you can't be a person who's just reacting all the time right. to evil. Nobody can live a life like you that. You can't live it. You just got to turn on some good music you, and let that go. You got to have something outside of that. In That's terms right. of family, love, music, arts, solidarity with the poor, whatever it is, 
but you're not naive. You know it is there. You right. know that, in fact, the uh, the white supremacy is there, the predatory capitalism is there, the militarism is there, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, that that helps me out. That's why I had to rephrase it because I was trying to think like, what about when your neighbors have signs? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to piggyback Victoria on your question, but uh, I was just that well put. Raising a deep question once again. We've got some folk Patreon that's yeah. We got a we got a deep community. Highly impressive. Yes, indeed. Okay, I think we got one more question here. It's from Fadi Antun, and uh, Fadi is asking this. Uh, I'd really appreciate a conversation about Tupac and hip hop in general in the fight for black lives. His mother being in the Black Panthers that certainly influenced him from a young age. He grew up fast and found the power of rap in conveying a message through music. Tupac is not really spoken about in the talks about the recent history of social justice in the 90s. The government was definitely aware of his influence and they didn't like his message and there's a reason for that. I'm going to let you kick us off since oh, I... Oh, uh, well, yeah, yeah. all right. Well, I'll start with a very personal note. I've talked about this all the time. I was blessed to teach at the Timbuktu School at House of the Lord Pentecostal Church, 415 uh, Atlantic Avenue under the great Reverend Herbert Daltrey, uh, the National Black United Front, and Tupac would be on the front row and I would lecture every second Wednesday with Charles Barron and Inez Barron. Those were some good days. Uh, Finney was there, Tupac's mother, who was a member of both the church and had been a member of the Black Panther Party. So I can remember Tupac's lovely eyes just oh, yeah. focusing he on eyes. me. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's got beautiful eyes as even a young brother. We're talking about Garvey, we're talking about Malcolm X, we're talking about Martin Luther King Jr., we're talking about Fannie Lou Hamer, we talked about jazz, we talked about rhythm and blues and so forth. Now, I didn't know he was going to become the towering genius that, that he did become, uh, but I think Tupac certainly had a level of courage, vision, charisma that the powers that be were highly suspicious of. And Tupac is like all of us. He had a whole lot of freedom fighting in him. And he he did exercise and enact some of that potential, but he also had thuggish life in him. He put, he put it on his own body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and by thuggish, what I mean is going through life thinking as if you're able to resolve conflict by means of you imposing your will. So you end up having the capacity to subjugate and manipulate others too. It could be women, it could be gays, lesbians, other men or what have you. So we had this civil war taking place on the battlefield of his own soul. That's true for all of us. And he, as an artist, he just displayed that in a very, right. very open way. And uh, Tupac remains one of the great artists, not just a black folk of America, one of the great human artists of the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow, I didn't know that you basically ran, you know, lectures and classes for Tupac. That's, oh, that's, right that's another, another source of distinction in your rather <laughs> extraordinary <laughs> life. Love that um, young brother. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I would add is that, you know, Tupac left enough of an ambiguous legacy that it's understandable why he wouldn't come to mind immediately in terms of thinking of social justice in the 90s, because the late 80s, early 90s had groups that were more explicit about politics, 
that would make Tupac be sort of closer to the gangster rap equation of the or the, of the binary between, say, you know, socially conscious MCs and the ones that would be considered more thug life oriented. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. said, I think compared to what happens after the turn of the century, 2000s on, Tupac begins to look more and more like a social justice warrior. In other words, in hindsight, right, the, 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 the trajectory of, of sort of, you know, capitalism, get mine or die trying philosophy that hip hop begins to go further and further toward, Tupac looks like a, you know, social justice activist uh, by contrast. So it really is about context for me with a little bit of Tupac. And, you know, what I'm so sad about is that he didn't live long enough to resolve yeah. some yeah. of these these kinds of conflicts um, because the industry it was very manipulative and he was vulnerable to all of the institutional structural pressures, the destruction of black communities, mass incarceration was, you know, in was already in almost full tilt at the point that he was, you know, working. And, uh, and there was a lot of, um, there was no critique yet, no major critique of what we would now call kind of toxic masculinity in hip hop, right? The fans would just allow all of this beef and conflict and threatening yeah. each other, you know, as a, as a sales ploy sometimes, as a record industry strategy, um, but also as a reflection of the, of the time and the, and the, and the chaos and, and, and sort of fragility of the communities. So um, to me, you know, we should we should raise Tupac up, but we have to be comfortable with his ambivalence, right? We can't Absolutely. turn him into an activist just because he comes out of a legacy doesn't mean his body of work and his body of actions are sufficient to place him squarely in that tradition without a big asterisk about about other other behaviors that really contradict it. Absolutely. And I would just tell the name of the questioner again was uh, uh, this was um, uh, hold on. I've already forgotten my Fadi Fadi Antun. Oh, Fadi. Yeah, I would just say that you want to read Professor Tricia Rose's work on the emergence of hip hop and the variety of different voices and counter voices, prophetic voices, middle of the road voices and so forth. You'd want to read uh, Bakari Kitwana. You'd want to read Michael Eric Dyson's early stuff on too. There, there's a number of folk who have been wrestling with these kinds of issues at a very, very high level. So that uh, the fact that people might not be talking about Tupac as much in 2020, that he is going to come back. A great artist like him is going to come back. He will not be forgotten. There's no right. doubt about it. But there's been these marvelous minds that engage Tupac on a number of different levels and you'd wanna make sure you read their works so you get a chance to be able to sustain your own understanding of the great Tupac, the genius of Tupac on a high level like those writers and scholars who I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very, uh, very powerful. And yeah, Tupac had both a spirit and he had a voice, the, the, his, you know, the sound of his emceeing, there was a, a depth, a warmth. It was almost like he was really rapping from his gut you know, everything felt like it came really from his gut. Yeah. And that that feeling that he invoked had its own political resonance. Um, Absolutely. You know, there was a, a kind of honesty in him that is relatively rare. That's true. <laughs> and certainly in hip hop. Well, thank That's you, Fadi, so for the terrific question. Um, we really appreciate it. We've had 
this has been like I think a fantastic inaugural uh, Patreon Absolutely. community conversation. Absolutely. Um, and so, do you have any closing thoughts, Cornell, before we let our first uh, office hours come to a complete close? Any thoughts you want to say? Anything? Well, again, we just salute our brothers and sisters of all colors at Patreon for the magnificent support, the confidence you have in Sister Tricia and myself trying to the best of our ability to say what's inside of us mm. in these very grim times and to do it with a sense of humor. Of course, Tricia does it with a sense of style that I aspire to, but also to engage the richness of the subject matter, which is the mm. doings and sufferings of too many folk in the world, no matter who they are. Mm, yes, indeed. Well, I'm going to allow that to stand because I have nothing of that magnitude and value to say. I just agree that we just try to do the best we can do. And we're honored that you're here with us and that you're sharing it with other people, which you, which you are, and because people write to us and say they're looking forward to things. And so we're just really grateful for the feedback. We want to make sure that if you're watching this later and you missed this Patreon special, that you do join up so you can get the first round of conversations um, and join our Patreon community and subscribe and share and let us know what you think. And just thank you all again for joining us on the tightrope. And we're going to keep trying to swing and hang on as best we can <laughs> in the midst of all of this foolery. <laughs> and, all, and all of the grace at the same time. So thank you very much for being with us. Uh, and we'll see you the next time on The Tightrope.